right there. Well, it's a blessing to be with all of you today. Uh, we're, we're smaller, but praise God. I'm so thankful for all of you. And it's, it's always a joy and privilege to open the Word of God and, and preach the Word. Um, so thankful for, for Brother Brady and his, his faithful diligence to weekly prepare the table uh, for God's people here at our church. And um, today we are going to finish up the series that we've been in for the last couple of months, few months maybe, on the one another's. Of the New Testament. As a new church that's just starting, um, it's important um, to know how to relate to one another, right? To, to go to God's Word. And, and Pastor Brady thought it was important that we spend some time um, just going through those, those relational passages in the Word of God to, to look at what God says about His people, how they're to relate, how they're to function as a body. What to do, what not to do. We've seen positive commands. We've seen negative commands. And today we'll be in James chapters 4 and 5. And we'll look at three one another's here. Uh, The first two are are negative commands. um, And the third is a positive command. Um, So we'll conclude our study um, in the one another's today. So if you would, turn there with me to James chapter 4, and I will read uh, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. In verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? In chapter 5, turn to chapter 5, and verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And then our third one another is found in verse 16. But I'll start in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So the two negative commandments. Uh, The beginning, the first one in chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The church that is marked by slander will be splintered and divided. Um, where believers disobey this warning, there will be distance, lack of relational intimacy, suspicion. Where there's a critical spirit, people will be guarded and self-protective, especially those of, of more sensitive personalities, very guarded. But it will affect everyone, even if it's only indirect and foster an environment of putting on a face and hypocrisy. Essentially, the people of the church will live in fear of one another and live wounded lives and be much more likely to be enslaved to their sins. I've seen members of specific churches in a church that we were a part of once 
And several folks come over from a specific church, and all of them had, in, in a way, almost a visible um, uh, marker to their countenance. Um, they had come from a church that, where shunning was used, where there was uh, a hypercritical spirit, and those things were used to keep people in line, Right? To keep them from going outside the boundaries or, or, or even things that we would consider areas of, of Christian liberty or preference. There were hard lines drawn and no room for, for deviation whatsoever. And as these folks came into our church and then I started to get to know them, I also found they were very difficult to get to know. Um, they came with a very, almost like a lock and key to their heart. Um, and amongst each other, who had come out of, of this place, there was more fellowship and an easier relationship. But, but to those, a part of the larger congregation, we, we struggled to, to get to know them. Even though we tried to be welcoming, invite them into our homes, um, there was wounding there that had taken place. That was, it was grievous. And it was, it was painful to see the uh, condemnation that they were under and the deep scarring on their souls that had taken place. I don't think it'd be inaccurate to describe them as having something like post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, before Anna was born, uh, we, we were foster parents here in Oklahoma. And I remember one of our foster children uh, came to us due to neglect that he had experienced. Um, his primary caregiver had been his uh, eight-year-old sister. And when he came into our home, he immediately gravitated to Lydia because um, she was about that age. Um, but he was terrified of me. Terrified. Um, I don't know what happened to him. Often in those situations, you don't get the whole story if you get any story at all. Um, and, and we didn't know what, what circumstances he had been raised in, um, had he been abused, uh, obviously he was neglected. But I remember one time he was about 10 feet away from me in a hallway in our home. He was in the foyer, and I was walking in the hallway towards him, and I think one of the boys was lying down in the floor, and I hopped over him. And when I did that... Um, this little boy came unglued. He, he thought I was attacking him. I hop over something, a movement towards him, sudden movement. He was, he was terrified and um, lost it. You know, what, what happened there? What, what abuse had he endured? He, he was too young to, to tell us. We, we didn't know. Um, but over the course of several months of caring for him, loving him, um, he began to, to trust me. And we had a, a wonderful relationship um, after that point. It's, it's hard to even think about. In the same way, there are Christians whose ability to relate to other believers in a biblically faithful way is hindered by scarring and wounding due to slander and gossip that they've experienced. Heeding the Old and New Testament warnings against slander and gossip will protect us not just from wounding one another in the present, but also enable us to heal wounds from the past in one another's lives. Our intention must be to help and to heal. Um, James is writing this letter to Jewish Christians somewhere in the diaspora or the, 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 um, the Jewish community around the, the Mediterranean rim possibly in Palestine, 
But at an early date, this is a very early letter in the history of the New Testament church. And these Christians, these Jewish believers, were undergoing intense persecution and suffering at the hands um, of unbelieving fellow Jews. And as we read this general letter, without a specific church address, we read what appears to be a series of sermonettes. And one of the primary features is his pastoral heart. James is very concerned um, about uh, the, the health of these churches and their function. Uh, James, the leader of uh, the church in Jerusalem, and he includes imperative verbs. I know I preached in James not too long ago, a few months ago. Um, more imperative verbs here than any other letter in the New Testament. Count it all joy when you meet trials. Ask God when you lack wisdom. Be patient in suffering. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. Sixty imperative verbs in this letter. It's focused on practical Christian living. And just prior to the section in the text that we're looking at here, James um, has uh, talked about um, the unrighteous judgment of others. Um, He's describing unjust oppression of the poor by wealthy unbelievers. Um, and he's warned people that God's judgment is coming for them. But what does it mean to speak evil against another believer? As it says in this passage, to speak evil against. What kind of judgment is being spoken of here? Um, In the last year, we've heard Pastor Brady preach on Matthew 7, 1. Judge not. The favorite verse of the unbeliever um, in public when confronted with their sin. Judge not. Who are you to judge? And in his sermon, he taught us that we are, in fact, as Christians, to use right and fair judgments, which is what that passage, it's speaking against unfair, hypercritical judgments, right? We're commanded, in fact, to make judgments between right and wrong. Everyone does, even those who throw the verse at you. Well, aren't they doing the same thing? They're they're judging you in that circumstance. So it's impossible as people, as humans. If you've ever chosen a babysitter, you've judged. If you had two options, which one did you pick? You picked the one you thought was going to be a better fit for your family or a baby a better babysitter more caring no one can go through life without making judgments so what is this when the world says don't judge me don't tell me what i'm doing is wrong god says judge rightly fairly and without hypocrisy and even when you don't speak a word about the conduct of your neighbor your own behavior is a kind of judgment, is it not? What you do and don't do, what you say and don't say, what you love and don't love, what you hate, what is appealing to you, and what you find to be sinful or evil. Those are judgments. You may be vilified, just for not engaging in the behavior of those around you. John mentions this uh, in 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 12, when he references the reason Cain murdered Abel. He writes, why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. And James ends this book with an encouragement to seek out those in the church who go astray. In verse 19 of chapter 5, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back 
Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. To bring a sinner back, you have to confront sin that is estranging them from God, that has distanced them from God, right? How can you bring someone back without confronting error? So clearly that's not what we're talking about here. James isn't contradicting himself. It drives me crazy when people talk about Scripture contradicting itself, as if, as if the writers of Scripture didn't know what Scripture said, as if they're just ignorant. They're, they weren't. They knew what Scripture said. James isn't contradicting himself. So what is he forbidding? The Greek word here is kataleleo, which translated is speak evil against. Elsewhere, it's translated slander. Right? It refers to careless, reckless, and or untrue statements against someone. Reckless, careless, untrue statements against someone. And speaking against someone typically takes two forms, right? Slander or gossip. And both of those are malicious. Both of those are forbidden in the church. And they're intended to bring harm to that person. Or carelessly will bring harm to that person. Either by falsely spreading a narrative about someone that is untrue. Through outright lies or through an exaggeration. Or by speaking something that may be true of them but with the intention of turning others against them, of injuring them, of bringing people to my side, negatively shaping another person's thoughts about them. And gossip and slander have no place in the church. And throughout Scripture, they're referenced as a sure way to destroy a person and destroy a church. And what are we really doing when we gossip and when we slander? We're speaking against God. We're speaking against His law. On the one hand, we're acting disobediently towards its warnings about this very thing. Are we not? We're saying, no, those don't apply to me or those don't apply in this situation. And so we stand above God's law in arrogance and pride and say, oh, that's, yeah, that's not for me. This is important or it's, you know, this really has to be said. Um, So on the one hand, we're disregarding its warnings and placing ourselves above it. God is the one who's given this command. And we are to heed it. When we don't, we put ourselves in a position to be judged by God for ignoring and disobeying His word and His law. Uh, let's turn to James chapter five, um, the first or the second one another that we'll discuss today. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. So that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This verse is found in a portion of chapter 5 that's encouraging believers to remain steadfast and patient in suffering. To remain firm in their faith. This is a portion that... uh, I preached um, a few months ago um, about establish your hearts. You remember this? Establish your hearts. Be firm in your faith. And in the middle of that encouragement is an admonition not to grumble against one another. 
It's interesting, elsewhere this word is translated groan or sigh. In Romans, where the creation groans as it awaits the revealing of the sons of God, that's the word that's used. It's groaning. It's kind of that uh, a sigh, frustration, having to wait. Oh, these people. I can't believe I'm in this church. I can't believe I have to deal with this person week after week after week. They drive me crazy. So we're talking here about an inner attitude, right? It's not so much a grumbling out loud, you know. It's that inner murmur. It's that inner frustration and disappointment and just... Kind of dismissal as someone as just a pain. That's what we're being warned against. It's blame. Oh, it's their fault. This this church. If only if only they weren't in this church, everything would be better. Have you ever felt that way? I've never felt it. No, I mean if you've been in any number of churches, uh, you. You succumb to this more than likely at some point of grumbling inside against another believer. Consider, if you will, a congregation of believers experiencing hostility from the world together as these Jewish Christians were to whom James was writing. And now imagine them groaning, sighing, grumbling, begrudging each other Even calling on the Lord. Lord, would you just deal with this person? It undermines your ability to remain steadfast in the face of persecution. If the church is full of dissatisfied murmuring. Murmur, murmur, murmur. Grumble, grumble, grumble. So fed up with each other. That there's no recognition that Christ is on the threshold. He's at the door. We we are racing toward the second advent. And we're so consumed with our own frustrations and murmuring that we don't even recognize that Jesus is right there. The judge is standing at the door. How often do we ourselves stew in that inner monologue of grumbling about our fellow church members and our leaders, maybe even asking God to judge them, you know, calling down imprecatory prayers. I don't know, I hope not. But we're sinners. We have to be reminded. We have to be told. We have to be brought back to the truth that Christ is on the doorstep. That we're not to have even, we're not to slander one another outwardly, but even inwardly. We're to kill that sin of being critical, of being grumbling, groaning, sighing against one another. You know, we need each other's prayers. We need each other's help. How many prayers have we not given to the Lord? about a fellow believer who's driving us crazy. Maybe really. It happens. There there are believers that are difficult to deal with. And sometimes those believers do have to be dealt with in more serious ways. But brothers and sisters, it's to a man's glory to overlook an offense. Is it not? We need to be forgiving, gracious, helpful And the motivation he gives for avoiding this is that Christ is at the door. This can be limited to the heart, but what it produces is a callous arrogance toward others, an inflated view of self. All of us have caused harm to others. All of us have sinned against other believers, great or small sins. If we had a view that the judge was standing at the door, maybe we would be more forgiving less condemning since the same judge 
who in our hearts we sometimes want to bring this person to judgment. That's the same judge that can judge us. And it's the same judge that apart from grace we'd we'd stand condemned in front of him. We would stand condemned. Remember Ephesians 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. One of the surest cures for a heart that's bitter is to remember the grace of God in Jesus Christ toward you. To remember his salvation and your wretchedness, your need for him. Even now, even today, I want everyone to know the grace of God in Jesus Christ. When you revisit that grace, you're brought back to humility, brought back to gratitude. You're reminded of the forgiveness that you have received. It's possible that even here now, today, there's some who do not know Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter how young or old you are. You could be four years old. You could be 84 years old. Where's Jamie? I'm kidding. Jamie's not 84. But no matter where you are in the spectrum of, of age, if If you don't know the Lord, you need to know him. Jesus Christ is the greatest king. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That means in a room full of kings, they bow down to him. He's the supreme ruler. Because he's the greatest. He's called that... And he is the only one that is worthy of worship. Jesus came to earth from heaven. He never disobeyed the commands of his father. He never disobeyed his parents. He never said an evil word, had an evil thought, or committed an evil deed. He was perfect. Are you perfect? Are you perfect? Have you ever disobeyed the commands of God? We all have. In Isaiah 53, we read, We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Psalm 14 says there's none who does good. Not even one. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned. We are all sinners. We have all broken the law of God and are hopeless to save ourselves. And because God is holy and good, He must punish sin. We were created in His image and we rebelled against Him. And the Bible tells us what the penalty of sin is. The wages, the payment of sin is It is death. We are all deserving of death. God warned Adam and Eve that that's what would happen if they disobeyed his word. He said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And the day they ate of it, physically, they began to die. Spiritually, they died. They were separated from him. He warned them. They disobeyed him. And now... There's nowhere to hide. We're rebels against God. Hebrews 4.13 tells us that all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's a terrifying thought. To be exposed before the brightness of God. For him to see everything. To have nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. But to be before the creator the majestic God of the universe, and to not be able to hide yourself, that his gaze would look on you 
and see everything that you have ever done, thought, said, everything you are, even more than you yourself would know. And you would know that. You would know that he sees even more than you can see. It's a terrifying thought. We must give an account to God, and we can't hide from his presence. Is there anyone who can help us? In the light of that terrifying truth that we will stand before God to give an account, who can help us? Jesus can help us. Jesus came. He brought sight to the blind. He can cure our blindness. He died on the cross for sinners to take the penalty that we deserve. He came to save sinners like you and me. He perfectly obeyed God in our place, took the punishment that we deserve because of our sins on the cross, and he took that punishment and he completely exhausted it so that anyone who turns, who repents and believes in him, he says no ifs, ands, or buts. It's a guarantee. You call on him for salvation, you will be saved. He rose from the dead, defeating death and becoming the firstborn from the dead so that everyone who believes in him also has that hope of resurrection, bodily resurrection, to be with God, to be one of his children. He ascended to heaven and one day he will come back to save his people and judge the wicked. Peter preached in Acts 3, He said, repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. God's promise to those who come to Christ in repentance and faith is that you become one of his children. John 1.12, but to all who received him, that is Jesus, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. And when you come to him, he promises forgiveness of sin, eternal life, a new family, peace with God. You become part of his kingdom with all of its privileges and all of its responsibilities. We want you to know Christ today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. So if you're here and you don't know Christ, turn from your sins and turn to Christ in faith. He is mighty to save. He's strong enough to do it. But he has to do it. You can't do it yourself. Cry out to him if you don't know him. Cry out to him to save you. Believe in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's our hope. We have to continually proclaim that to ourselves. We see in this passage, these believers had these murmurings, grumblings within them. They needed to remember the gospel, the good news, and to embrace it. And to trust in its promises. And to trust that even those believers who are difficult to deal with share in that common salvation. They are our brothers and sisters. We need to pray for them. We need to help them. And one day we may need their help. We need to be in a place where we can do that for one another. Where we love each other. Where we take care of each other. And we don't murmur and groan about how unfortunate we are that we're with these Christians. Lastly, we come to the positive command. In verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. This verse lies in the middle of a section dealing with the Christian response to illness. And if we look at the context, context of this letter as a whole, and the immediate context, 
I believe, and this is a minority view, I want to say that. If you see this passage differently, that's okay. I'd love to talk to you about that. I believe that this passage is not actually referring primarily to physical sickness. That is not how I read this passage. I'm not the only one, but I will tell you, most commentators do think this is sickness. I think the context says otherwise. So let me explain why. Consider what these Christians had been going through. This is the context of this letter as a whole. Persecution, poverty, oppression, robbery. They were in dire straits. They were suffering terribly. Severe, severe trials that James says call for the patience of Job. The patience of Job is almost one of those, um, you ever heard somebody say, oh, she's got the patience of Job. It's kind of a, a funny term for someone who maybe is, has a difficult spouse or is in a, you know, uh, some kind of situation that's just really, really tough. You know? But it's kind of funny too. Well, no, these people, they, they really did need the patience of Job to get through what they were experiencing. Terrible persecution. This was the early church. Think Saul of Tarsus, right? Before he became Paul, running around, trying to find believers in the far corners of the world and bring them back and imprison them, have them killed even. This is the kind of thing that these believers may have been experiencing. Had they lost family members to execution or imprisonment? And it'd be difficult for anyone to endure that kind of suffering and hardship. Surely in the midst of these trials, some of these believers would have succumbed to despair. They were trying, but like a child who no matter what their parents do, just is not, is not growing properly. You've heard the term failure to thrive you know, as Christians, we, we can also come to a point where we are not thriving in our Christian faith. We may be in deep despair. We may be experiencing some sort of suffering that is, is, is affecting us terribly. And if we look in verse 13, James starts this with, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Now, typically this refers to some sort of persecution. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? I take this to mean spiritual sickness. This word is also translated differently in other passages, passages of Scripture in the New Testament. This is the word um, asthenai which is typically translated weak or powerless in the other two instances where it is used. Weak or powerless. So I believe that that's what he's referring to here. This is some sort of terrible weakness, powerlessness, an impotence, an inability to, to thrive as a believer. Losing hope, losing faith. While it's possible that these believers had experienced physical harm, we know that they were experiencing terrible suffering. We already see that there were issues among the believers, the, the grumbling, the slander. Remember that the writers of the epistles, and this is just a general interpretive principle of Scripture, the writers of Scripture were dealing with real problems in the churches, in the lives of the people to whom they were writing. They weren't just theoretical. They weren't hypotheticals. You know, Paul, when he wrote his letters to specific churches, he addressed real issues that they were dealing with. Real sins. Real schisms. Real problems. The same here. And these believers were living in difficult times. Some were in need of correction. Some were in need of encouragement. This first word, 
typically translated the first word for sick in this passage. In verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Typically translated weak or powerless is the same word in Romans 14 too, which is discussing how one believer only eats vegetables, can't eat meat because of his conscience. It refers to him as a weaker brother. That's the word that is here. Weaker. Um, The second word, which is in um, uh, verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. That is the word... um, Kemnanta, um, which is also translated grow weary. And so I believe that this is referring to a weariness or sickness of soul, specifically due to the incredible pressures that these hardships and persecutions had inflicted on these believers. Weariness of soul, I think, would also better account for how he includes forgiveness of sins when the elders pray for this person. And it also seems to line up very well with verse 16, the one another verse where it says, pray for one another that you may be healed. Confessing your sins to one another, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Well, confessing your sins, healed of what? Well, it seems that he's referring to the sins, to the the problem, these, these maybe habitual or besetting sins that someone's dealing with. Now, I want to be clear. I don't have a theological issue with this passage referring to physical sickness. And maybe I'm wrong. But it seems to me that given the context here, um, it's referring to a spiritual or uh, spiritual sickness or some sort of weakness and affliction. Spiritual weariness is made worse By sin. And these difficulties brought about by persecution can lead to intense temptation to sin. Persecution can tempt you to compromise, right? To avoid further persecution or threats and dangers. And persecution can also lead to deep despair. But what an encouragement this passage gives us to deal honestly and openly with each other. This is the other side of the coin from the two negative commandments that we've seen in chapter 4 and now also in uh, earlier in chapter 5. Not to slander one another. Not to grumble against one another. The outward manifestation and then the inner manifestation of grumbling. This is the other side of that. To confess our sins to each other. To pray for one another so that we can be healed. Just as the weary, the the tired soul is encouraged to seek the encouragement and the focused prayer of the elders of the church. To help him or her to be revived and strengthened and restored to fellowship. And the promise, someone who comes like that to the elders will receive that and find any fellowship with the Lord that's been broken by their own sin, removed and restored. You know, you maybe have even experienced this. In Psalm 32, David talks about how When I kept silent, I wasted away through my groaning all day long, thinking of his own sin. Maybe you've experienced that. I have. Wasting away. Just, and and he says why. He says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up. as by the heat of summer. But then what does he say? He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 
Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Come to the Lord, right? Bring your sins to the Lord. And part of bringing your sins to the Lord, in some cases, is getting another believer and saying, please help me. I need help. I'm struggling with this. I can't seem to beat that. Whatever it is, part of the beauty of the church is that we are there for one another. And this is part of that. An aspect of functioning as a church, biblically, confession, mutual confession of sin, and mutual prayer. Every Christian is encouraged to regularly confess sin. This is not the Catholic confessional sort of practice through a screen to someone that can, you know, by law, never say anything about this. This is, this is to another believer. And any believer, it doesn't have to be an elder. Any believer can encourage you in this. But it's reciprocal. Back and forth, both in the confession and also the prayer for healing. We all stumble. None of us is immune to sin and temptation. One of the most remarkable differences between the Christian and the non-Christian is the relationship to sin. The unbeliever loves their sin, enjoys their sin, delights in their sin. The Christian hates and fights sin. And the Christian will see growth and holiness. We won't experience sinless perfection in this life, but we will grow in our faith and progress. It's not that we're sinless, but we should sin less, should we not? And one of the ways that we do this, one of the ways we grow in holiness is through this kind of confession and prayer to one another. You might call it accountability. It's pretty general here, what form that takes. But it should be a part of our lives, a regular part. And I think one of the ways that this passage fits with the other two is that if we're in a, a church and, and we are bickering, slandering, gossiping, grumbling internally, groaning, sighing toward one another, how can this happen? How can this happen? We, we will be cut off from this grace of God, practical grace of God in our lives. The unbeliever can do nothing that pleases God. Only that which is done to the glory of God can please God. As we learn in Hebrews eleven six, without faith it is impossible to please God. So be encouraged, believers. Brothers and sisters, 116. Examine your hearts. Examine your behavior. Your thoughts. What is, what, what is stirring in your soul? Do you pray for one another? Or do we just groan? Do we slander one another? Gossip about one another? Or do we respect our own failures and weaknesses enough to be forgiving, to be gracious, to recognize that Christ is at the door and how that behavior undermines our, our witness, our effectiveness, our, our strength, leads us to powerlessness. But if we're a church that loves one another, that prays for one another, that confesses to one another, the Lord is going to be honored and lastly, as James encourages us at the end of this, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So pray for one another. Help each other. Don't allow bitterness 
to creep in and settle in your soul and keep you from loving and cherishing and treasuring those believers that we have around us. The blessing that we have to be united in faith in the one true God and his son Jesus Christ. As we go forward as his ambassadors in this world, proclaiming the gospel of his kingdom and his return to judge the living and the dead, to bring salvation to his people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your, your great word and the encouragement of your scripture. Lord, help us to take from this place um, the gospel that you have so wonderfully given us, to proclaim it, Lord, to love one another, to function as you've designed us as a church to function. And God, to be, to be faithful witnesses. Lord, just help us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful, Lord. Forgive our sins. Help us to always be returning to you, to always be repenting, to always be coming back to the truth of the gospel that has saved us and rejoice in that, that wonderful truth that we are yours, your children by faith. Lord, if any here are without you that do not know you uh, today, God, may you plant the seed of, of your word in their hearts and, and Lord, bring salvation to them. Thank you for my brothers and sisters, God. Thank you for your, your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, brothers and sisters, we have no equipping hour today. Uh, but as Brady encouraged us uh, last week, um, you're welcome to, to stay and fellowship. Um, I know there's Cheetos down in the kitchen which is fine by me. I don't. Does nobody like Cheetos? I, I've been kind of shocked. You like Cheetos? No. What? Well, I don't know. It's working out well for me because there's like 40 bags. So, thank you for uh, your preferences. But um, let me. Uh, there's a few announcements. I'll go through these just before we step out. Um, May 29th. Uh, is that Saturday, right? Um, the memorial service for. Um, the Meggett's uh, baby that they uh, lost um, in a miscarriage, Jordan. That will be May 29th. And then uh, next Sunday, we'll have our small groups. So, so we'll be going through that excellent wife and uh, what's the exemplary. exemplary husband and the excellent wife. Thank you. Um, and also we'll be taking the Lord's Supper. So be preparing your hearts for that. Rejoicing in the feast of the covenant meal together. Um, and then our weekly schedule is in your bulletin. Um, and uh, that's about it. So the Lord bless you. Uh, it's a joy to be with you today. And may God bless you in your week. I hope you to be faithful to him.